Hey, Carl Franklin here. If you're going to be around Oslo, Norway, the 17th through the 21st of June, why don't you come stop in and see us at NDC? Richard and I will be there recording podcasts, so stop in and say hi, but come for the speakers. Brock Allen, Donovan Brown, Joe Albahari, Julie Lerman, Steve Sanderson, Jen Stirrup, Troy Hunt. Obviously, there's a whole lot more. This is one of our favorite conferences in Europe. Come check us out. Go to ndcoslo.com. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, we're safe and sound back home, home from all of our travels. But this is kind of a travel season. We're, I, you know what? Every season is travel season with us, isn't it? <laughs> Come to yeah, think there of used it. to be a time where there's like a few spring shows and a few fall shows and everything else in, in between. But now, if, if you want to go to a conference, there's a conference somewhere in the world any given week. Yeah, exactly. You know, Maybe not over Christmas and New Year's, but that's about it. Right. So uh, this is going to be a good show. We wanted to chat with Sam Newman in London, but uh, we couldn't figure out the schedule. So I, I think we're even going to try and chat with him in Porto, too, and that didn't work out either. Right. Yeah. I think this is on a 4-3 scheduling. <laughs> well, anyway, we're very glad to have Sam here with us. But uh, first, we have this little matter of better know a framework. All right. <laughs> Okay, dude, what do you got? So I'm going back to um, a blog post that Martin Abbott wrote on his blog, Slightly Cloudy, in June of 2016. Such a good which title. Which was really cool. You know, it's, it's, I love blog posts like this. It's called Fun with Azure Functions and the Emotion API. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> so you you know it's and when just, you say fun you mean horrifying no 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 fun so the whole idea is that he wanted to exercise some of this technology so he came up with this demo that right. has some uh that uses the cortana intelligence suite which you know now i think is cognitive services right and so he wanted to create a function that used a, a blob storage trigger so anytime that you uh, upload a file to uh, a blob storage, an Azure function will trigger, and then you can read that data, and it's an image in this case. So then he uh, uses the Emotion API in Cognitive Services and tries to figure the emotional content of the picture. And so he shows the pictures that he tested it with, and they're really funny. So <laughs> he uploads a picture of a goofy smile. So his scores come back really low for anger, contempt, disgust, fear, neutral, sadness, and surprise, but happiness is 100%. Yeah, he nailed it. Yep. So then he tries for surprise, and anger, contempt, disgust, uh, happiness, he's got a very small value, neutral, sadness, and surprise, he's got like 0.9. Which is pretty good. Pretty good. So 0.95, you could round that up to one. Mm -hmm. And then he did one where he does this cartoon frown. Like it looks so <laughs> kitschy. <laughs> and sadness comes back 0.98. There you go. And finally anger, you know, he's gritting his teeth and his eyebrows are, you know. So his anger score came back uh, 0.47. Just not that angry a guy. And interestingly, happiness came back 0. 0.5. <laughs> <laughs> I 
<laughs> so it could be anger, could be happy. We're not sure. They're not really sure. And it's kind yeah. of funny because he is kind of, it looks like he's smiling. He's gnashing his teeth, but it kind of looks yeah. like he could be smiling. So. I, I think we'd pick it up as that whatever that is, that's not right. How right. are you doing? Kind of yeah. <laughs> you know, it reminds me of those pictures you collected for a blog post ages ago. Of oh, God. Making silly faces. <laughs> that's, that's a long a time ago. Whole nother story. Yeah, no kidding. I would like well, to cool, formally dude. apologize nice to all the tech ed speakers that I did that to. I had no idea those pictures would stick on the internet for so long. For so long. <laughs> oh, Boston. That's a long time ago. Yeah. All right, man. Who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off of show 1617, the one we did back in January 2019, talking to Arnon Axelrod about test automation. And he was talking about test automation in the context of microservices as well. So I thought that uh, Mark Hodgson's comment was really salient. He said, uh, we mostly deal with smallish projects, lots of them, maybe 100 different repos now, but they don't have test suites. While I see the automated approach would be nearly essential in a large project worked on by many hands, I've struggled with the economic justification for automating testing for smaller projects that are coded by a team of one. I realize we are somewhat in the minority with the approach these days. Anyway, I've bought the book. And I'll have to read it and perhaps move to reevaluate our position. And Arnon actually responded to this. And he said, yeah, you know, if it's a throwaway project, don't worry about it. But as soon as you're going to be, as soon as you want that software to be reliable for any length of time, mm. including test automation, it's just part of your build process. Right. Uh, so that it's just tested every time it gets built. You don't even think twice about it. It's just not that hard to do. And the new tooling makes that simpler. And that certainly spoke to me on this idea of as we take, and I'm sure we're going to go down this path with Sam, these large monolithic projects and decompose them into microservices, that these are the services that we would immediately build tests around and include in our, in our automation process. Yeah. So Mark, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or via any of the social media. Actually, we publish every show to Facebook. And if you comment there, we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet because they they help us with our insecurity. <laughs> Just make us feel yes, more I secure. am fully validated by my Git merge tweet. <laughs> I found a video of two, you know, armies crashing into each other, ridiculously cartoonishly flying all over the place. And they said Git merge on it. Oh, God, I know. And so a quarter billion people said, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> Yeah, I, I could uh, make a lot of money as a Git merge consultant, and when people have <laughs> these bad problems, I would just tell them, yeah, just don't do that. Don't do that. You don't That'd want to do that. $1,000, please. Well, somebody <laughs> responded to that tweet with a picture of a dragon blasting an army to pieces at Git rebase. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's bring Sam into this conversation. Uh, after spending time at multiple startups and 12 years at ThoughtWorks, Sam Newman is now an independent consultant. Specializing in microservices, cloud, and continuous delivery, Sam helps clients around the world deliver software faster and more reliably through training and consulting. Sam is an experienced speaker who has spoken at conferences across the world and is the author of Building Microservices from O'Reilly. Welcome, Sam. Hiya. Hello. Uh, well, hello to both of you. I don't even know where in the world you are right now, but uh, thank you for having me on the show. Oh, no. We, we, we are spanning the time zones between the three of us. I'm on the West Coast, uh, actually looking at the ocean at this very moment. Of Canada. Yeah, West Coast of Canada. Yep. I'm on the East Coast of the United States, 
And uh, you're in the, uh, wait a minute, what is your country called now? I'm in the United Kingdom of Great Ah. Britain and Northern Ireland. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Not quite as united at present as it has been in the past, but we will gloss over that because that could be a different podcast entirely. Well, yeah. And considering the time shifting on when this show gets published, the situation may be very different. That's exactly We're recording at the end of March. And near as I can tell, you still have a union. I just don't know how much longer it's going to last. Right. Uh, Let's just just say I'm embracing my Irish heritage pretty strongly at the moment. (laughs) Ah, nice. Oh, I bet. Yeah, no (laughs) kidding. It's uh, these are, you know, we on one hand you just think it's just a ridiculous situation, but for Ireland this is not funny at all. This is serious. No, business. no, no, no. no. Yeah. Uh, You'll be calling up your uncle Seamus and asking if he's got a room. <laughs> it's not quite got that bad yet, but we'll, I, as I say, I might be calling one of you folks in, in a couple of months for a room if it gets that bad. Oh God, you don't want to be here. <laughs> <laughs> go with the Canada option. That's okay, what I'll go, I'll, Do the Canada. I'll go with option. Canada. Don't worry. We're fine. <laughs> All right. So what are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about securing microservices. Ouch. That's all I got to say. <laughs> Is it really that bad? Uh, do, you know what I, do you know what I think it is? I think uh, at one level, it's no worse than um, securing a normal application. But I think right. the mistakes that you might make with a, say, a more monolithic application will get you in trouble faster with a microservice application. Right. Uh, okay. So we just accelerated your failure. And there's, there's one other nice kicker in all of this as well, which is there's, there's, there's this other thing that you've kind of done. All this information that used to flow within a single process, within a single processor, is now going between machines across networks. So you've kind of got this, uh, I can make mistakes at scales I couldn't even imagine before. And at the same time, I'm now sharing information everywhere. It's kind of like your foot shooting weapon is a much bigger caliber. (laughs) And the bullets is bigger. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, when I do talk to people about it, it is they they do actually start to talk about the really complicated stuff. But but often it's even more important to have the basics sorted. Um, And, and, you know, you, you were talking about test automation earlier and, there's another, you know, with Microsoft architectures, you know, you, you do, you're doing the same thing over again. So even with those basic level things, automation becomes even more important, right? You can't rely on manual processes for, you know, patching your operating systems, patching your, your application stacks. You, you kind of, and that's, 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 people see that, that's not a microservice oriented thing. No, no, it's not. But if you're doing all that stuff manually with your microservice stack, like you did with your monolithic stack, you're going to get yourself in a whole heap of mess. It occurs to me that when you're living in that monolithic model, you really only have one perimeter or two perimeters you're trying to secure, and you got lots of perimeters when you got microservices. Yeah, totally right, Uh, which can actually be a bit of a a blessing in the microservices space. The fact that you do have multiple perimeters can actually help you make applications which are more secure in a way because you you can think about different DMZs, you can apply multiple levels of perimeter protection right. uh, you can isolate services that handle PII uh, so personally identifiable information separate from those that don't um, and so that can actually lead to more nuanced sort of ways you implement security procedures like mm. um, oh, that's an interesting thought because you know you generally have one service account to get access to the monolith and if that account is compromised yeah. well pretty much the whole system's compromised but it, if you've granulated this, you've broken Absolutely. it down a different. You have different accounts here. You literally have a little more defense in depth. But that also Absolutely. means a lot more work. So where do we start? What are the, what's the key? Where, where, where are the key differences in the security architecture with microservices? Uh, so I, I tend to go after, I mean, 
very quickly we'll cover off the big fish which is um uh, automated uh, ways of rolling out software so automated deployments because hmm. being able to redeploy your application is really useful uh that's especially important if you can redeploy your application uh in a way where you can effectively scrub the entire infrastructure clean so um you know so rather than redeploying a piece of software on top of it as the operating system can you scorched earth it so if you're rebuilding something entirely through driving say the api to spin up a managed vm on say azure or aws or wherever else that can stand you in good stead because any malicious software that's been installed you're destroyed every time you rebuild yeah um it's what's often called server pattern um that sort of i wouldn't say it's quite table stakes for microsoft's uh, microservices stuff but uh, it's a really good starting point if you're deploying your software say in containers which a lot of people are doing now then you're almost doing that whenever you redeploy a new version of your container it's a, it's a brand new operating system effectively you're standing up mm. um that's one of the first starting points i'd, I'd go for um then we're looking at basic stuff like uh, you're sort of getting there more into rolling out of passwords and things like that. That can get complicated um, uh, because if you're manually managing, say, uh, credentials of services, uh, that can get tricky. What happens if you want to revoke those credentials? So I right. see a lot of the time the same username and passwords used for all databases everywhere because people can't be bothered to change them. Um, on some of the cloud vendors now, you've got really good solutions for rolling out those credentials. You've got things like the Parameter Store on AWS, for example. I don't know the Azure offerings quite as well. Um, you can also install your own software, things like Vault to manage that for you, where they can actually issue sort of time-limited credentials for each service on a service-by-service -service basis, and they can even handle changing and revoking those credentials sort of en masse. Right. Um, so that's, a, that, that's sort of uh, more advanced level stuff. Is that sort of a, a federation kind of pattern? Yeah, it, it kind of is. Yeah, I, it, it's. Um, I don't want to get too deep. We, we could do a whole podcast just on Vault, um, but some of these it's exactly that. So you can kind of. Uh, it, it's it's sort of really uh, like the smartest way of doing this. That the stuff I really love that Vault can do incredibly well, where it is where rather than say having a system administrator say this is the password for say the uh, I don't know the order processing database. So I've mm. created the username and password. I'm going to put that into a text file. I'm then going to push that text file out to all the machines that need it. Now that process can work okay. When you need to change that username or password, you have to push that text file out. And normally for those sorts of credentials, you'll want to rotate those things as frequently as you can, right. because if you can rotate those credentials automatically, you're less worried about them being in the hands of a malicious party gets hold of them and then, then all bets are off. Are you at all worried about um, a password being in a text file on a hard drive on a server? Uh, you can be now it depends it, it, this always when it comes back down to, to to how you think about your threat model so uh if you're thinking about how you're rolling those text files out if i'm putting that text file say as an attached volume in a docker container for example yeah. to gain access to that text file the malicious party has to either gain privileged access to the host running the containers or has to get into that container itself sure um now obviously there are attacks that let you do that but they are they're sort of they're not the commonly used attacks you see they're not the most often they're not the biggest issue that can further be mitigated if you give everybody a different username and password so if each service and each service instance gets their own username and password and it's in plain text on the machine and it's then but then it's rotated frequently I've got to get on that machine, get that text file while that set of credentials are still valid. 
Mm -hmm. uh, to give you an idea of what you can do with something like Vault, I might have five instances of my invoice service. Each of them could go to Vault, say, can you give me the credentials? Each one would get a different set of credentials. And those database credentials could be set up to expire after half an hour. So you're constantly um, uh, tumbling those credentials. That's mm -hmm. kind of the extreme edgy end. Okay. Um, but, you know, it sounds like if you're doing this or you're architecting, this is the perfect time to consider this stuff. I mean, certainly you need a plan for your passwords. The, you just manual's going to drive you crazy. Yes. And if you're going to go to the trouble of finding a good storage mechanism of passwords, why not get into a rotating password st strategy? Absolutely. Uh, uh, where it often gets tricky is the is what your application expects. Right. So if your application is uh, loading up those credentials and then never expecting them to change, it might only load them a runtime, say a boot time or start time. It's going to be concerned about the fact that, oh, well, you know, it's it, it, it always going to assume that they're effectively valid. So you'll have to change your application to reread those credentials. Um, there are other techniques you can use to, to get those passwords in. You could actually have the applications talk to Vault directly. You can have Vault update those text files. You can have it talk to the Paramus store directly. There's a whole mm -hmm. lot of different things you can do here. So I think the kind of, if you want to be able to change those credentials, your application stack has to think these credentials could change during the program's running. So right. am I going to, am I set up to reread those credentials? And just to be clear, you're talking about HashiCorp Vault, not Key Vault, Azure Key Vault, right? Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, so I'm talking about HashiCorp Vault. Yeah. Um, I mean, if you're running on uh, Kubernetes, you have a, a, a secret store solution that comes with Kubernetes, which some of the, obviously it's quite popular in the microservices space, a platform like Kubernetes. Yeah. Um, the secret store in Kubernetes is kind of okay. It's not fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but that, that stepped the game forward. Um, I would say, to be honest with you, though, you know, when I work with my clients, often they're much more, they have much more prosaic issues, much more basic issues. Uh, they, they aren't patching their software frequently enough. That's often the biggest problem we start talking mm -hmm. about from day one. Uh, oh, yeah. Because they say, oh, our, our operations team, they patch our operating system for us. And I'm like, okay, so, so what's the scope of what they do for you? Like, if they just patch the operating system of, say, the platform that you and your hypervisor on, or maybe just the operating system that runs inside your virtual machines, okay, but are you deploying containers? So who's looking after the operating system inside the container? You've also then got the application that runs inside the container, that application that you're running inside the container or on the VM, that has its own third-party libraries. Um, I mean, I think I mentioned in the, the talk I've been doing recently, um, some of your listeners in the US will probably know about the Equifax breach that happened, where yeah, it was about 160 sure. million records were breached uh, in the US, which and these were very detailed records related to credit scoring. That breach occurred because of a third-party a web framework called struts and the, there's a java stack that all in this this library that was used to, to create a web application um patches were widely available but fixed a very serious exploit that was found but equifax hadn't applied that patch they had anywhere from two to four months to apply it yeah and that was actually the vector by which an attacker got in and gained access to 160 million odd credentials you know there's patch management software out there that can help people automate patching and that scares me. But uh, I think if you take it all the way towards letting some automated task just download and install stuff that's new, that's scary to me. But at least 
it'd be nice to have something put all those patches in one place where you could just sort of sign off on them and have a, a human do yeah. that. What, what do you think? I, I think at the very least you need visibility. Yeah. So, so whether or not you're going to say automatically apply these patches, at the very least you need a visibility about it. Right. And, and I think the challenge now, especially with sort of the modern uh, microservice deployment topologies is that say you're running, uh, so a common model would be for you to run uh, in a Kubernetes platform running on top of managed VMs. That, and they might be your own managed VMs. So then you've got to think about the patching at the at the underlying tin level, right? Because, you know, you apply firmware patches to chips now after spec and all that kind of stuff. Then you've got the operating system that sits underneath the hypervisor. Then you've got the hypervisor. Then you've got the virtual virtu machine operating system. Then you've got to patch the Kubernetes cluster system. Then you've got the containers running on top of Kubernetes and the operating systems in them. And then you've got the third-party libraries that you put into your own application code. Right. And it's like, you might have different responsibilities and different visibility all the way up the stack. And it's about yeah. giving you... Now, obviously, if you run on a cloud platform, like you run on Azure, you run on AWS, you're pushing a load of responsibility to them, which mm -hmm. is great. Yeah. Then you need visibility over the bit that you own. Right. And Sam, I'm going to interrupt you for one moment for this very important message. This episode of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Datadog, a real-time monitoring platform that unifies metrics, logs, and distributed request traces from your cloud containers and orchestration software. Track the health and performance of your dynamic containers, apps, and services with rich visualizations and machine learning-driven alerts. Datadog's new cluster agent streamlines data collection from large container clusters and allows you to auto-scale Kubernetes workloads based on any metric you're already collecting with Datadog. To start monitoring your container clusters, sign up for a free trial today and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Visit dd.netrocks.com to get started. Support is also provided by MongoDB. You know, as a software engineer, chances are you've crossed paths with MongoDB at some point, whether you're building an app for millions of users or just figuring out a side hustle. As the most popular non-relational database, MongoDB is intuitive and incredibly easy for development teams to use. Now, with MongoDB Atlas, you can take advantage of MongoDB's flexible document data model as a fully automated cloud service on Azure. MongoDB Atlas handles all the costly database operations and admin tasks that you'd rather not spend time on, like security, high availability, data recovery, monitoring, and elastic scaling. Plus, get access to the latest database features as soon as new versions are made generally available. Try MongoDB Atlas today. Visit mongodb.com rocks to learn more. And we're back. It's Richard Campbell with Carl Franklin. We're doing a little .NET Rocks, yeah. talking to Sam Newman about securing microservices. And it occurs to me just before the break there that this is just a, if you're doing microservices, you need to rethink your update strategy as a whole, or even just dealing with containers, because you have these additional layers of patching that need to be done. And the fact that one group is only doing a portion of it, it's, it's kind of bad. You, you want everything updated in kind of a uniform way. Yeah, and, and there's a nasty thing that where microservices makes this worse, right? On the face of it, it's just we've got more things, we've got to automate it, but it gets mm -hmm. it gets worse in a way because when you break apart a monitor gap into lots of little pieces, which is you know what most how most people move into the microservice space, you you create a service that encapsulates a small piece of functionality that 
might not change for ages. So you've created a container that runs, that, that handles, I don't know, how you send shipping notification to your customers. And that functionality works, and it's just out there running. And you haven't touched it, you haven't looked at it for, say, two months, four months, six months, a year, two years. Now, if you've deployed that service two years ago, and it's running in a container, that's been running for two years without any updates. Operating system inside that container hasn't been updated. Mm. The third-party libraries in that they have not been updated. Right. So your code may not have changed, but you know the underlying libraries have. Yeah, I, I, and it's almost like the, when you when you deployed that software, it was fine. There weren't any problems with it. You could have even validated that when you deployed the software, that you, all your third-party libraries didn't have any known vulnerabilities. But vulnerabilities are discovered after the fact. Yeah. So do you have anything that tells you? You've got this thing running over here. It hasn't been changed in six months, but we found loads of vulnerabilities in the underlying, I don't know, Alpine Linux operating system you're running a .NET Core runtime on, or we found a, a, a vulnerability in this YAML parser. It's always a YAML parser. This YAML parser library you pulled in, we just found a zero-day exploit in that. You might want to patch and update that. Um, and there are now companies that are doing creating software that not only allows you to validate that stuff at build time, but can also look at your production environment and say, hang on a minute, you, you know, it's like a tap on the shoulder. Um, it will say, uh, you're running software right now that has vulnerabilities. Do you want to actually just sort that out? And sometimes it can be as quick as just rebuilding the container with the same version of your software on it, just to right. put in the latest operating system patches in that container. Hmm. And that might be enough. Um, but if you don't know it's happening, you can't make it, you can't decide whether the uh, GitHub has been pushing out emails on a regular basis for projects that I've been working on, reminding us that that's an out-of-date version that might have some vulnerabilities, like those kinds of things. Are there better tools? I, I'm really appreciative of what GitHub does, and the price can't be beat. But uh, you know, are there better tools than that? I mean, I think the – so there's probably two classes so of, of the stuff that – so the world I know better because I don't know the operating system world as, as well in this space because there the, the tech stacks tend to be a bit more proprietary. But you've got companies like Aqua that do this for container uh, level vulnerability stuff and they they will do both deploy time and, and runtime checking for vulnerabilities. Aqua go a bit fast further in, this, in as much as you can also define you know expectations about how you think this model, this, this container is supposed to run and you get alerted to odd things. For developer-focused things, uh, there's a company called SNYK, which is spelled, spelled S-N-Y-K, and uh, they look across multiple different technology stacks. So they support um, .NET, Java, Python, Ruby, um, JavaScript, Go, and they curate. They basically pull in all of the sort of CVE databases for various different technology stacks. And what they do is they scan your de dependency files you've got declared in your build files, build the languages as well. And they can do, they can either do things like fail the build if your software depends, say you depend on the NuGet package that's out of date, they could make your build fail when you try and split, when you try and kind of check in. And they say, hang on a minute, you need to upgrade this. What they can also do is they can send you pull requests and say, this, your YAML parser 1.5 has got this critical vulnerability. Here's information about the critical vulnerability. Here's a patch to upgrade to the newer version, fixes it, do you want to merge that in? So effectively it can send you automated pull requests. Now, it is going to cost you money, um, but it's going to cost you like, you know, a few hundred bucks a year. It's not going to cost you... Yeah, nothing compared to a breach. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I think it pays itself. Yeah. Are large scale microservice systems, uh, do you have any customers or have you seen people who have uh, gone away from HTTPS because of the overhead and instead opted for something like hashed based messaging or uh, other things to protect data in transit? Um, to be honest with you, it's very rare that those kinds of, so I, I would say that I don't have any clients that I've worked with in the last sort of three or four years that are where that are in what I would call the ultra low latency space. Yeah. The vast majority of my clients aren't trying to get, you know, they're not trying to eat the last, you know, uh, right. bit out of their communication protocols. So uh, in those spaces, people tend to make different trade-offs. I mean, ultimately, in some low-level, uh, it's sort of some really high, high, high sort of low-latency situations. From speaking to other people, often what they do is they adopt sort of the crispy outer-shell model. That's what I call where you basically assume that there are no parties on your networks, and then you can do whatever you want between your machines. Most of my clients are operating in spaces where the overhead of HTTPS is not something they're in any way worried about. And normally, end-to-end latency is a concern. You can nearly always solve it in different ways. For example, caching, restructuring calls, or just merging services back together. Um, and so I, I, saw, I see clients talking about other protocols other than HTTPS, but typically not related to making the security side of it faster but more about just general latency. And it's funny, it wasn't always that way, right? I mean, in the earlier earliest days of messaging protocols, SOAP and everything, HTTPS was sort of like not... <laughs> we, were, we were saying, you know, you're going to have uh, overhead here. And people were really concerned about it. Now it's just so darn easy and you could just flip it on and why, why shouldn't you? I remember spending a lot of time deciding what parts of a site were going to be HTTP and what parts of the site were going to be HTTPS. Me too, yeah. Because be- once upon a time, encryption was costly to the CPU. Yeah. I, I, and a couple of yeah, computers got faster. Those algorithms have got faster. There's hardware support for those algorithms. It becomes a lot more of a non-issue to an extent. I mean, obviously, what, uh, certain you do have the fan-out problem. So you have a single call that comes into a microservice architecture, maybe you click a button, you've done something in the user interface. Mm. That could then kick off a whole chain of calls downstream. Right. So although we might not be looking at, say, a 20 or 25% overhead on HTTPS calls, even for some low latency organizations, if, if, if it's just like adding a, like a half of a percent to your latency of one call, that can end up being a more significant part of the overall end-to-end latency if you're making 10, 15, 20, 25 calls. Sure. In those situations, I have certainly seen people say, look, within these services, these services that talk to each other, we're sort of going to assume that they're in a trusted relationship that we can assume in level of implicit trust. Mm. And then we might put some perimeter mm. security around those collection services. Um, Ultimately, it, it might come down to a trade-off ultimately between that latency, uh, that latency requirement and the level of security that is acceptable. But that's no different to any trade-off. I mean, the most- how do you define a trust like that? Like, is it different kinds of account? A, a different kind of account? Uh, it, it could actually just be as simple as, as network routing. I mean, you know, think about how you'd set up. You, you know, you, you probably both be in environments where you've used, a, say, a load balancer to take, terminate HTTPS. Right. So the calls coming into a load balancer, HTTPS calls downstream or not. I mean, something as simple as that you can do. And 
and the um, API gateways that you do stuff like that on the modern cloud providers. And it could be that straightforward. Okay. And there's certainly soft versions of those that you can set up as containers and, and, and run them in whatever cluster of uh, services you want. Uh, ab- absolutely. As long as you get your networking rules correct, that, that's absolutely fine. I mean, uh, I mean, Nginx would have no problem doing that sort of thing if you wanted to. It is interesting when you start drilling into these details how much the sort of software-defined networking becomes an essential part of the agreement. That architecture has to say, these machines are going to speak to each other and they should be able to speak to each other fast. And these machines probably won't, are never going to speak to each other. So there's just no way to get there. Yeah, I, I, it, it, it's, um, it's incredibly powerful stuff. I think the, the challenge often is that we're now asking developers to make judgment calls around those things. And historically, you would have specialists would work on those things. But now we put it yeah. in the hands of developers. I think it can become quite bewildering. I mean, if you go into the world of overlay versus not overlay networks in in the in the container space, for example, it, it becomes quite confusing. And often, I feel what we're lacking are tools to help people visualize and understand the relationships between these containers once we've defined them. Um, I mean, you know, Docker did the good thing for the beginning with where they just sort of came up with that that initial, well, the most popular container format, you know, beginning, which was containers are secure by default you have to explicitly open things up to allow things to talk to each other mm. and that that's that was the right thing to do um but when you do make a mistake in that stuff how do you visualize that mistake uh how do you see how things are talking to each other um i mean there are now tools that will give you visualizations of the relationships between things uh and you spot interesting things like hang on i didn't think these two services could talk to each other but clearly they are so what's going on there mm. um <laughs> but that tends to like you know that, that that that's that scary stuff sometimes, but that's as much about like how many how much this problem space can you fit in your head. What what about different authentication mechanisms? Does it matter? I mean, we're just using HTTPS here, right? So, but you, you are going to have to authenticate with something. Are you a big OAuth guy, or you know, how do you do this? So I I sort of think about uh, authentication for human beings. On the perimeter, I don't really think the world changes. It remark, I, I don't think the world changes it, at least until how you think about how things get to the perimeter. Okay. So I think the good old fashioned world of I log in using OAuth on the mobile device, you know, some other, you know, whatever that might be, that gets me to the perimeter, and that says now I can make requests. Where it gets kind of more interesting is when I click that button. When that when that button click comes into the to my perimeter. I say, is Sam logged in? Yes, he is. He was allowed to click that button. Great. Mm. Oh, but when you click that button, I've got to send this call to this downstream service. That downstream service in turn has to send a call to another downstream service. Now, if you like HTTPS, you've effectively established a level of trust. We'll say mutual TLS, being very specific. Yeah. With something like mutual TLS, you establish trust between a client and a server, but that's like computer trust. So, you know, the... Um, uh, the web shop calls the order processing service and the order processing service says, well, you can mutual TLS. I can see that it's a trusted client. So great. You are the music shop. Everything's fantastic. But then you've got this other piece of information that can be useful, which is which human being though made that request. Right. Um, and the, the challenge with microservice architectures is passing the context of who that human being was to allow downstream services to make smarter judgment calls on the authorization side of things. Um, 
And so what, what we're seeing in that space is a lot of people using these things called uh, JOT tokens or JavaScript book tokens. Um, and again, you, know, you, you sort of touched on hashing earlier. It, it's a very similar idea. You take a JSON structure, uh, you apply a hashing function to it. Uh, so you end up with uh, basically an encrypted hash, which represents this JSON payload. Now, what normally the one that you do is, so if you think about your perimeter authorization authentication layer, someone logs in, I Sam says, I am Sam, and they say, yes, okay, yeah, I trust you are Sam. I'm sending this request downstream to your services. I'm going to create a JWT token representing me, Sam, and what I'm allowed to do. So I could put my role, I could put my roles in there, I could put my groups in there. That JWT token, which is just, you know, this is hash function, this is this like nice little hashing thing, that then like, gets sent downstream with a request. So services can pass that along their chain. The downstream services can then, you know, open up that JSON payload and say, ah, yes, this is Sam, and Sam's in these groups. Based on my local rules, if Sam's in these groups, he's allowed to do these things. Um, and so that kind of, that's, that's sort of the, that's a more advanced take, but that's the only way in which I see this world changing. I still think in terms of how you authenticate the user initially on the perimeter, it, things don't change. More what happens inside your inside your sort of uh, your perimeter stack. Where do we bump up against problems with automation and security and the integration between those two things, the interface, if you will? Um, oh, well, sort of at a meta level, in general, the state of security tooling is pretty shocking. I spoke into it. I am not a security professional. I am what I consider to be a conscious incompetence. That means I know that I don't know much, right? If I'm trying to educate myself. Um, but I speak to, in, in the general space across the security world, the state of tooling is quite poor and it's very rare these tools are going to be well automated. So I was speaking to a colleague, an old colleague of mine who said, our client bought this automated security penetration t- testing software. It was automated in as much as you ran it. It then sent off these detailed reports that had to be interpreted by hand. And then they sent you a 200 page PDF for every single run. And that was automated. Um, You know, that that was, you know, state of the art type stuff. Uh, Whereas we want to be able to, you know, get sort of more automated, actionable feedback. Right. Um, And so things are things are are definitely getting better um i think if you look at uh you know you uh, one level you've got things like service meshes now which are looking to make things like mutual tls easier to roll out um you've also got things as i mentioned things like vault you've got the parameter store uh you've got the various different automated hsm appliances out there which have make it easy for credential management mm-hmm. uh i think the um, and you've got i've already mentioned tools like snick um yep. For, to, for automation of those side of things, um, Aqua as well. Uh, I think what I'm less, you know, what, what isn't as much on my radar are the tools that you would then use for sort of validating a lot of your security stuff. Here you're into the world of, you know, uh, uh, penetration testing, those sorts of things. So just because you're using a tool to automate security updates and penetration testing doesn't mean that you're you know what to do necessarily with the results of those reports yeah uh, yeah and, and often you know uh, i don't know enough about the. i mean typically with the organizations i'm working with i'm working with developers to make them a more conscious part of the security profile if you want to see it that way you know yeah. like the way i view security and developers is 15 years ago developers thought testing was somebody else's job and now 
developers do testing as well. Yeah. We also still have test specialists. There's great roles for test specialists out there, but we do a bit of testing ourselves because we have to think about testability in how we build applications. Right. What I'm trying to do, and the same thing with, 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 with the security, is like there is some security thinking you can build into how you build your software. But you don't actually, it's not a lot of stuff in the grand scheme of things. But there are still things, and I think penetration testing is a good example of that, where there is a role for specialists and specialisms. And it tend, in most organizations where I work, they normally will have a dedicated team or quite often an external company that will do things like regular um, pen testing sessions. Uh, I mean, obviously, you if you want to go and educate yourself about how to do that, um, going through some of the ethical hacker uh, um, uh, workshops and things out there would be really great. Um, it's been a long time since I did any of that myself. Um, but, you know, that, that mostly consisted of me running um, stuff like Nethus on uh, on machines, which may, nowadays might get you extradited if you pointed it at the wrong place on the internet. But, uh, I'm wondering about how retrofitable these thoughts are if we have an existing infrastructure. It just had the sense that it would be really hard to fit this in after you've already built it. Well, yeah, I, I would start with that. Uh, but if you think about think like visibility of patching, I mean, pointing SNCC at your, your, at your application code, that's, that's quick and easy. Um, the, if you think about the rollout on, of management of configuration and credentials, if you read your credentials already from a text file, um, then you can, you could drop in something like HashiCorp Vault. And you can say, well, these text files for these 95 things are still handled in the old way. Mm. For these five things, these text files are now getting updated from Vault. So there are ways to incrementally introduce these new ideas. Um, so I, I think it's um, it will be work. I'm not going to lie to you. And obviously, if you do things from the beginning, you can kind of maybe create uh, common libraries you use or adopt common frameworks to implement these ideas out of the box. Uh, the other thing that's really interesting for me is, is what's happening with the service mesh space, because the service mesh space promises to offload a bunch of these concerns so that your applications need to know about them. So by you know almost just by running on top of the service mesh, the service mesh could already, for example, be handling uh, mutual TLS for me. It could already be handling validation of job tokens and propagation of job tokens for me. Um, I don't think we've really seen them to service mesh deliver on those promises yet, but I think there is the promise that that will happen. Um, so I'm hopeful about the future there. Uh, but I would say, look, if you don't know where to start, I would, you know, some of those like real long hanging fruit bits, getting your patch visibility up there. Do you know how quickly all the layers in your stack are patched? Do you have visibility on when that happens? Something as simple as that can really help. Yeah, I would. I would think if it would be more difficult if you already have some sort of monolithic overarching security system that you know has to get in get its hooks in every single microservice and then it's sort of like an all or nothing thing right i mean and i that that would be the nightmare scenario for me yeah and to be honest with you it's 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 more often than not how an organization has chosen to it's, it's more often than not down to how an organization has implemented its security policies yeah so what will often happen is, you know, I've worked in environments that have implemented Sarbanes-Oxley really well. I've, I've worked in environments that have implemented that really, really badly. And uh, what, what happens is you you come up with your security policies. They get signed off. They then became, become tried. This is how we do things. We've been told by our auditors, if we do these things, everything's going to be fine. Right. Of course, auditors won't tell you if you could have done something smarter. 
What right. often then happens is you're stuck with a policy that doesn't fit your architecture anymore. You can solve those problems in different ways, but you can't really fight against this because this has come down from on high. As a really like a concrete example, I was working with a client uh, last year, and they had been told that they had to, put, if they wanted to move to a public cloud provider, that they would have to rebuild. They would have to get. They were not allowed to use SOAP APIs anymore. They had to use the rest. Had to move to REST APIs. And and I said, look, moving from SOAP to REST APIs is a significant amount of work for you. You'd get some quick wins just by moving to the cloud. Why do you have to move from SOAP to REST? And the answer came back was we were told that REST is more secure. Now, of course, that's complete rubbish. There's yeah, nothing inherently nothing more secure, secure about REST API. Well, this is the thing. This had come from on high, a large organization where some somebody has signed this off as being fact. Right. And so now you had this thing where you have to move to REST to be able to move to the cloud. So I said, well, what could have been a one-month journey to the cloud just by looking at the interdependencies is now a two-year journey to the cloud. So I... I urged them actually in that situation to go back and challenge that advice. Yeah. Well, lead with the cost and then also lead with, and it won't be any more secure. Yeah. yeah. yeah no. But I do, I do want to jump back. Carl's point about the monolithic security model, I think is really salient. Although, correct me if I'm wrong, Sam, most of the time that security perimeter is for people. And in my mind, you know, you've said this a couple of times now. The big thing that happens in microservices is you have far more components calling other components. Yeah. And they have they can use a different security process. Yeah. I, I will be honest and say that for the vast majority of people in that space, they assume implicit trust. Yeah. Right. They just assume that anything on the network can talk to other things in the network. And that's still where a lot of people are at. Um, and but, but mutual TLS is a great way for components to talk to other components that the external world is just not going to be able to get at them. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. I, and I, and, but I think there's a really valid point there, though, which is that you now don't have to have a one-size-fits-all security stance. Right. Well, I think there's this two, you know, guys that are living in the monolith world, we've had the credentials of people being able to access the monolith, and probably the only other set of credentials you ever had is however you call to the data store. And suddenly you have lots of credentials when you do this decomposition. And so... Mm organizing the strategy around passwords and organizing the strategy around dif differentiating between people calling things and software calling things, probably the biggest talking points. Like if we get those two things nailed, the, the architecture is going to be a little more self-evident after that. Uh, uh, and it also plays a little bit into the ownership model of these things too. Sure. Because ultimately if, if, if you know, if you say, uh, if you adopt a kind of a strong ownership model where these developers own these services, if you want to make a change, you go and ask those developers. They own the lifecycle of those services. Then it's a little bit easier to track who can access those services, how you control the, the credentials in that space. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but whereas if you have more of a collective ownership, like anyone can change any service, anyone can trigger a deployment of any service, that, that drastically complicates your, your, your security concerns. Most really experienced devs I've talked to in these complex environments want as access to as few credentials as possible. Yeah. Because then it can't be their fault. So I really like that thinking that it's like, hey, I work on these three things and I have the credentials for these things and nothing else. Yeah. Least least access. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, that's that. This is why, you know, one of the basic things I do with teams is like, you know, they might be deploying one of your, I say, okay, we've got 10 teams. Each team should have its own Azure account. They deploy services in separate Azure accounts. 
we then set up your security groups such that those services on one account could talk to another account. But by having those isolated accounts, already you've got a level of, sort of safety built in in case those credentials are leaked. Sam, what's next for you? I, I know you're working on a new version of your book that uh, Amazon says will be out in October. What what can we expect in that book? Yeah. Um, well, so what happened, I was working on that book and there's a chapter in that book called uh, Splitting Services. And I was reworked. That was the first chapter I thought I'd rewrite. And that went from being 5,000 words to being 35,000 words. In the oh, space <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is, I, I'm an expert in system decomposition. So making big things small. And I took a small thing and made it big. So I'm clearly not <laughs> that smart. So I've, um, I've got a new book coming out, which is effectively just that one chapter made into a book. So I'm wow. going to be, that will be out in early access in June. Um, that's, you'll be able to get uh, access to that on Safari and those sorts of places. That's going to be, uh, sort of the, the title is going to be monolith to microservices. So that will probably push out the second edition of building microservices a bit, but I wanted to get that book out. So that should be, I think that I hope will be in print, uh, by sort of September time, but early access will be coming up certainly early June. Excellent. Yeah. I'd really like to read that. Yeah, absolutely. I'll send you guys a, guys a copy once I have something worth sharing. Fantastic. Absolutely. That'd be great. Sam, thank you so much. It's, it's, it's been enlightening talking to you. Uh, you're welcome. And thanks, thanks so much for having me. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter van.